Welcome to the Tech Lowdown Show, where each episode we'll be discussing opportunities in the tech space with entrepreneurs from the U.S. and around the world. I'm your host, Chris Jones. Most of us, when we think about entrepreneurship today, we envision founders who've built businesses from the ground up and taken them to new heights. People like Gates, Jobs, or Zuckerberg often spring to mind. We watch shows like Shark Tank and envision unknown founders getting their big break by getting investment from famous founders who've already made it big. But in reality, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship comes in a wide range of forms. Some entrepreneurs buy established businesses. Some, like today's guests, are brought in by the owners to take a business to the next level and in the process become owners themselves. Will Daly is currently the operating partner at Periscope Equity and a founding partner of Flanner Hall Partners, both private equity investment firms investing in high growth ventures. Prior to becoming an investor, Will served as co-president, COO, and CFO for Barcodes Incorporated, North America's leading provider of barcode, mobile computing, and RFID technologies. Will is a graduate of the University of Notre Dame and Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business. Will, Thrill, welcome to the show. What's the lowdown? Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to be here and see what this is all about. <laughs> Perfect, man. I'm super excited to talk to you. Um, first, give us a quick couple of minutes on your background and how that led you down the path towards barcodes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I think for everybody or for everybody that gets into entrepreneurship, the entrepreneurial bug starts in some way. For me, that happened when I was a lot younger. Uh, when I was in high school, my dad, after 20 years climbing the corporate ladder, started a successful small business. So I was able to watch that and come to appreciate his experiences. But it wasn't until a bit later that that was the right time for me to pursue entrepreneurship. Uh, after after that experience, I went to Notre Dame, as uh, was mentioned earlier, was a business major, had a couple of financial roles thereafter, and then went to Kellogg, as uh, Chris mentioned earlier. When I was at Kellogg, I had a couple of experiences that shaped my future career, specifically meeting certain people. I met one gentleman by the name of Dan Nettesheim, who became my partner at Barcodes. And uh, we met and worked on everything from class projects to sports to sat around talking, talking about running a business one day and just really developed a great relationship and partnership. Uh, worked for three years post-business school. And then at that point, Dan found the Barcodes opportunity. Our dialogue originally was centered around him leaving McKinsey and whether he should do that and go work for Barcodes, but then it quickly evolved into me joining him and us forming the management team together like we had always talked about. Very, very cool. I felt like... Go ahead, please. Uh, I'm just going to add one more thing. I felt like us working together, we'd be successful at anything we did. And uh, as I learned a little bit more about the business, I got even more fired up about it. I wasn't super passionate about any of my corporate positions before uh, getting into more of an entrepreneurial setting, but it took uh, it took getting into small business to really bring out the best of me. Very interesting. I want to understand how private investment firms in this space operate. Can you start by giving us an overview of how firms like yours or the ones that you joined at the time identify businesses and then go about placing executives in those businesses? Uh, absolutely. I, I think I've had experience working with three private equity owners when I was working at Barcodes. And I'm now involved with, Chris mentioned Periscope, but two other firms as well at this point. So I've seen a variety of private equity firms. I think they're all different from certain aspects. First of all, stage, there are venture-focused firms and obviously more established private equity investors that are looking for more existing businesses rather than startups. Different sizes. I worked with small, medium, and large private equity firms during my barcodes days. Uh, 
I would even I would even add growth versus turnaround, equity versus debt, and and different structures of management teams, whether backing existing teams or looking to replace uh, founders that are exiting. So it depends on what the private equity firm's focus is, but they're all looking for certain things, and they're all spending their time uh, looking for deals, constantly developing a pipeline, cultivating network to generate deal flow. Some broker deals, but even more so proprietary deals if they can find them. I would also add that. Each firm has its own approach to the deal process. Some are take take charge, kind of strong arm the process, get in front of it, and really kind of trying to commandeer the process to give themselves a competitive advantage. Others are more patient and work with an existing construct. So I think it depends. I, my experience at Barcodes was growth-oriented investors looking for an existing team that was successful and wanted to take the business to the next level. Um, my current experience now is a little bit more diverse with different firms looking for different types of businesses. So I think once a firm identifies a strategy, that, that really informs what they're looking to do from the standpoint of management. In the case of Barcodes, the, the small private equity firm, a group in Chicago, bought the business from the founder who wanted to exit. So their model was to identify a couple of guys, myself and Dan, who were young, smart, hardworking, ambitious, had some skills, but maybe not quite as much management experience, work with them, give us the support we needed early on and really get us off to the races. So that was my experience. And as we evolved, went through a couple exits, we were more established, had plenty of experience at that point. And it was a little bit more, uh, just give us the resources we need to keep charging. Awesome. Two things. Um, first, I'm going to ask you to turn off your video just so I I'm getting a little bit of feedback and that'll make sure that our connection is a little clear. And then second, um, Tell us about exactly where Barcodes, the business was at the time you got involved. And then what was the negotiation like uh, and what were the key points that were important to you during that negotiation with the private equity shop? Yeah, good question. So Barcodes is small, less than 20 people when I started. It needed to be professionalized. It had been run by a founder who did things by gut, didn't really use data, uh, had a lot of successful entrepreneurial traits, but really, really needed to be professionalized. It did have one specific competitive advantage, though that we inherited and, and built on quite a bit, spent a lot of time building on. The, the business had a late 90s first mover SEO advantage, which really proved to be quite defensible over time and was a huge source of uh, cost-effective traffic for us, which, which grew our customer base immensely. Mm. Uh, so you know, at that point in my career, when I started at Barcodes, I, you know, I had a great education, had some good corporate experience, thought I knew everything about the world, but really hadn't had a lot of small business or any small business management experience. So I think for me, the ability to um, you know leverage or, or um, display credibility and drive greater economics came a little bit later as I started to grow my track record, show how much value I added. So there was the initial um, period and the initial negotiation, but then there were add-on negotiations over time, even within the same ownership period, as I sort of proved my ability to really impact and grow, help grow the business. And but, what was that negotiation like? What were what were the key points? What were you what were you negotiating yeah. over? For for me, at the time, throughout my time there, and even still now, it was really all about equity stake. I I wasn't motivated by my salary or a raise or even achieving my annual bonus target, even though it was a decent portion of my annual cash comp. It was really about how can we build this business and drive a greater equity stake down the road. That's what motivated me. That's what motivated Dan. And I say it still motivates me because even though I left operations in 2016, I'm still a shareholder. So I care about what they, not I, do to grow the business now still. Interesting. And so when you're currently or back then, what's a typical stake look like for a manager coming into a situation like this? Like what's the range? 
Yeah, I think it depends what your role is and it depends what the structure is. We had two managers and, and myself and Dan. And, I, I, you know, a lot of times in private equity owned businesses, there's an option pool. Uh, option pools, I would say a midpoint is 10% of, of the growth of a business. Um, from there, there's a lot of deviation up and down. For us, we had to split the pot a little bit. Um, Dan came on first. I joined him thereafter. So that was a factor in our negotiation process. Uh, the first time at least, and then it, it was easier after that. But I, I think, you know, if, if the top two people on a team are something like seven, eight percent, and then the rest is shared among other leaders in the business, that's a, a reasonable starting point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, great. Did, at the time when you guys started, did the business require additional investment? Uh, and if so, how do you get the investment firm to stump up the cash? Yeah, I think I think the, the firm was just recently purchased by a private equity firm from the founder. So th- they had assets, they had resources. I felt like we were appropriately judicious at, at the outset. I think um, the equity pool, so to speak, was defined. So that wasn't an issue. And, and I think over time, as we grew, we, we got a little bit more aggressive and we pushed more chips on the table when it came to investment decisions. But um, at first, there wasn't a big capital requirement. It was really going in and understanding what the business was all about. Like I said, professionalizing it, hiring um, better talent as appropriate, and, and, and really just trying to get the thing off to a good start under a new ownership period backed by this private equity group. Capital was never really a constraint, just due to the ownership structure as well as our growth. Growth makes everything easy. It really does. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So... You mentioned, and I think this is fascinating, you were at Barcodes during a time when a company went through two exits um, where you and the management team stayed in place. What was that experience like and what did you learn during the first exit you were able to apply during the following exit? That's a good question. So the two exits were very different. First one was a proprietary exit where the the founders, I'm sorry, the, uh, the first private equity ownership group went directly to one group that they'd worked with in the past. And it was a, a one-to-one transaction. The second one was a full dog and pony, you know, 20 roadshow presentations, 10 management presentations with dinners and full day meetings. So uh, they were different from each other. I wish I could tell you the first one prepared me for the second one. But what I can tell you is all I learned from the second one, which I think might be more relevant to others that, <laughs> that may listen and go through a process. So that process was uh, a four to five month process. It was grueling. Uh, in a sense, it was energizing as well. We, we, we had a good business. We knew that we were responsible for a lot of that growth. So there was a lot of positive reinforcement and a lot of positive feedback over that period of time as well. But just from the standpoint of having to constantly be on and focused and in presentation mode for, for a really extended period of time was, was, uh, was a difficult thing. Yes. I would add, oh, by the way, we also had to keep, keep growing the business during, during the same period of time. So right. wearing those tool hats, uh, those dual hats divided time and divided attention and, and made things hard, especially one of, one of my roles was to, to, to be the CFO. So there's a lot of burden on the financial function during diligence and exit and, and that whole, uh, that whole process. So right. it was, it was, the w- one thing I would also, I would also say, I think is, is, uh, very relevant as a, as a learning for me is as you go through a process, it, it stretches you, but you get to the finish line. You feel excited about a win. You feel excited about a transaction. You have a liquidity event there's a bit of high-fiving with the sellers and everybody having a nice closing dinner and talking about how great that, that, that journey was. But then you get to the point where the dust settles you know, a week or two in and you have a new ownership group who hasn't won anything yet. And you might have <laughs> gone through 
you might have gone through two exits and gone from point A to B to C, but these guys are they, they paid a pretty penny for the business, so you could take it to point D. So managing expectations in the in the um, in the context of a bit of fatigue, deal fatigue, and a bit of burnout was not an easy thing. So that's something to always look out for. And I think uh, setting expectations with the new group and coming to terms and, and understanding where we all are and getting re-energized is a difficult process, especially for us it was around the holidays, which you would think might make it easier, but we were dealing with what's your business plan for next year and that kind of stuff too. So uh, an interesting process. And so was there ever a consideration by potential buyers of buying it out wholly and bringing in new management or was you guys sticking around always a part of the deal? You know, I think first of all, I'm not, I'm not uh, so, so self-confident enough to say that, that uh, everything was a result of the management team. It was a great business model. I think we did a great job maximizing it, but at the end of the day, everybody is replaceable. That said, part of the value proposition looking at buying this business was uh, over time, for example, when the second transaction occurred, me and Dan were seven years in, we'd built the team, everybody was, you know, all the top managers were people that we hired, and presumably we did something right to grow it significantly over that seven-year period. So I think feeling like existing stable management was in place, in our case, was important to the, the, the PE bidders, so to speak, because that enabled them to continue what was going well not waste time ramping up a new management team and really just be off to the races as we had been under the first two ownership groups. So never really a consideration. Um, you know, obviously during the, during the third group's ownership period, I decided that I wanted to, you know, personally leave, not, not, not leave as an investor, but leave as a day-to-day manager of the business. So that'll, that'll be a different dynamic when it comes to the next exit, which will hopefully be pretty soon here, but, um, never really a, a consideration in our, situation. That's really interesting. I want to dive in a little bit from a to an operational perspective. And can you talk a bit about what role the different PE firms played while you and Dan were growing the business? Um, and were there opportunities uh, you were able to take advantage of or constraints that held the business back at the, at the time as a result of the structure? Yeah, yeah. So e- each of the firms was different. And I think they, they, um, they approached the business appropriately given the size of the business and, and sort of where we were in our evolution. The, the, first, the first group that came in, the business was small, like I said, less than 20 people. They focused on professionalization, installing software applications, igniting growth, um, harnessing and using data more than had ever been done before, real kind of nuts and bolts, blocking and tackling. How do we, how do we capture all this low-hanging fruit and grow this business? The second firm only held the business for uh, not quite two and a half years. That was our fastest growth period. And um, they, they were less hands-on. They mostly stayed out of the way and kept reinforcing everything that we were doing, reinforcing core growth. And you know their, their ownership period got up to a great start. So our, our largest growth year was the year they bought the business over the 10-year period I was there. So that was, that was a keep doing what you're doing kind of relationship, <laughs> yeah. which, is, which is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> And then I think in the third, third third ownership group, this this gets back to your question about what opportunities were we able to take advantage of. In the third ownership period, our growth was a little bit slower organically, still solid, still great, but a little bit slower. But what we really did was focus on strategic add-on acquisitions. So, in a, having that group there, having their you know deep pockets, so to speak, there, a, as well as resources to pursue 
and negotiate and close transactions, add-on transactions, really made a big difference. We were able to uh, buy a couple add-on businesses at relatively attractive entry multiples. And not only are they good businesses that will grow on their own, but there's also an opportunity for multiple arbitrage there as well. So I think having those guys uh, made a huge difference in being able to add on through acquisition, as well as make some bigger bets when it comes to restructuring certain operational topics or one, one project we did was we restructured our entire 100-person sales force and our sales compensation model. Big project, big deal, big impact on the organization. And they were uh, fully supportive of that from a, from a dollar standpoint, but also from a thought process standpoint and helping us think through, uh, you know, some, some potential pitfalls to avoid. Uh, operationally, I would also add each of them was very different from a style standpoint, communication style, meeting frequency, formality, um, the ways that we interacted with them, the number of people at each of the firms that we interacted with. So that took some getting used to. Mm-hmm. You go from you go from a group that's in Chicago and right down the street and very hands-on to a group that uh, just wants to have a quarterly board meeting where we present from a deck. That was a lot different of an interaction. So right. getting getting used to the different ownership groups was, was – uh, I wouldn't say it was challenging, but it was something that required thought and something that required a proactive approach. Yeah, and, and trying to understand what their ultimate goals. Obviously, everyone wants growth, but uh, you know, people buy businesses for different reasons. And trying to get beneath the surface of what are they really looking for from us had to be an interesting transition. Yeah, yeah, and I also think there's a timeline with a private equity ownership period. And if you or I owned a business and it was a business we were going to own independently for 20 years and just run run indefinitely, we might make different decisions versus hey, we're going to hold this thing, you know, four or five years and we want most of our capital investment to be in the first year or two so that we can bear the fruits of that when it comes time to sell the business in four years. That's a different mindset. And I don't think mm-hmm. we we I don't think we did uh, much that was short-sighted or anything, but I do think that that informs timing, magnitude and and nature of investment to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. From a personal perspective, you mentioned that Dan got into the business first. Yes. How does how does someone even get on the radar screen of these private equity firms to be considered for a management opportunity like this? Where do, where do you find people? Yeah, so two questions there. I think I'll tell you, Dan was able to find the opportunity. He previously worked at McKinsey in Chicago, and the principals of the private equity firm that bought the, the business from the founder in 2005 were also Chicago office McKinsey alums. So he was able to reach out to them through that network. Uh, obviously, I joined the business because of my Kellogg relationship with Dan. But then to go, to go to the second part of your question, where do we find people? So we found people in all, all kinds of different ways. Um, one way we, we used our networks from, from our sort of three alma maters, two undergrad and Kellogg. Uh, I went to Notre Dame, as you mentioned. So we hired one of the senior managers right now as a Notre Dame grad. Uh, Dan went to West Point. We have uh, one or two West Point people on the team as well, as well as a couple of Kellogg people. So that, that was, that was a, another network that we used. One other sort of funny story, ha- circumstantial story. When the second firm bought the, bought the business, they used KPMG to do their financial diligence. There was a, a, a young uh, manager on the KPMG diligence team that about eight months after the transaction, I hired, worked for me, became my protege. And then when I left, he's now CFO of Barcode. So uh, he, by being in the right place at the right time, I suppose, on the diligence front, and then, you know, really, really, really excelling once he got to Barcodes, he's now, you know, the number two guy in the company, so to speak, now that I'm gone. 
Uh, I love this story. It's, it's really interesting. So I want to jump into the real lowdown segment of the show. Gosh, it feels like the show has flown by. Um, and here I want to dig dig deep, get a little bit deeper beneath, beneath the surface um, and get some more answers as to how you guys did some things. So talk to me about the exit processes and what kind of sway or influence you had during those processes, if you had any, particularly, and, and take us through the first one and, and the second one. Yeah, sure. I think they were different. So I think with the first one, um, it was a proprietary deal. They went straight to a firm that that they'd worked with in the past. So from a firm selection standpoint, there wasn't a big process. It was it was let's meet these guys, see if we can do this, see if there's a good fit. They were very different from a personality standpoint. So it wasn't smooth from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but you have to realize at that point we'd grown the business, but we hadn't had any liquidity yet. So we had some conflicting incentives, right? Yes. One, get a deal done, get a check. Two, you know, can we work with these guys for round two here? So I think that took some some negotiating, some relationship building. Uh, even even at the end, we had we had had a really positive relationship with that first firm. Uh, it was a bit of a leap of faith jumping to the second firm because I don't know that on day one we felt like it was the best fit, best fit. That said, we grew so fast that year. We grew so fast the next year. It really didn't make any difference because, it, it, like I said, it's easy it's easy to high five each other when things are going really well, and that was the case throughout that second firm's ownership period. So, uh, never an issue. Yeah, that, that that that's great to hear. How might and you you alluded to this a bit earlier when you talked about the time horizons, but how might you guys have run the business differently had you and Dan had full control of the business? Yeah, let me let me add one more thing to the previous one, and then I'll then I'll jump to that question if you don't mind. The second process was a bit different. That's why I, I think it's worth commenting on. Yeah, I, I think um, we had some control, but it's probably good for people to hear less than I would have liked. To be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, mm-hmm. the the ownership group, the private equity owner, was the, the majority shareholder, and we we had built a, a sizable a stake ourselves at that point, but not nearly as much as the the ownership group. And, um, one particular buyer who I would tell you it worked out the way it was supposed to work out and it worked out well in the end, but they basically commandeered the process. They commandeered it with speed, with pressure, with, um, certainty of close and by bidding more than everybody else. So I think the, this, the sellers got really enamored with them and really uh, confident that they would close in a timely fashion. So while it's up to management to build a rapport with a future ownership group, it would have been hard to sway that one either way, um, given the momentum they built around the deal process. So I think that's important right. here for, for others that might go through a, a deal a, a deal process because, um, you know, to say it one more time, less influence than I wish I had. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And so how might you guys have run the business differently if you were just in control? Yeah, yeah. I think a, a lot of small ways, um, timing of investment. Specifically, one thing I, I would add is we probably would have been more aggressive earlier, given given you know access to capital, investing in growth of our sales team. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not sure that would have led to a better long term outcome, but that's a decision we probably would have made. I know we were really bullish, you know, maybe two three years in, and I think our approach collectively with the board was pretty pretty disciplined. So I, I don't regret that, but you know, frankly, we probably would have would have been a little bit more aggressive. Lots of other ways uh, that the acquisitions that we made during the third ownership period are a good example. It was so much easier to get those deals done 
with a private equity backer because they ran diligence. They negotiated the transaction. Capital was laying around waiting for us. Right. All we had to do is, you know, do the, do the strategic piece, figure out how to integrate the business and decide whether or not we thought we could, we could grow that thing as a tuck into our company. So way easier to do that with a private equity sponsor. So that would have been different, but it was positive the way it was having that partner. Right. That's awesome. I, I want to finish on this. Uh, what mistakes did you make that stood out to you during this process of, you know, 10 years? What were the things that you went, eh, we could have done that better or, eh, I could have done, you know, this better. Um, talk to us about that. Yeah. Uh, so two ways to answer that one sort of operating and two is my experience through the transactions from an operating standpoint, man, I, I, I could list 10 pages of things <laughs> I would have done differently. I think, I think nobody knows all the answers. We tried to, we tried to always be sort of focused on action, always be focused on it's better to make eight good decisions and five perfect ones. Don't waste your time kind of 80, 20 and really attacking decisions and trusting our instincts. So we tried to do that. That results in mostly good decisions if you're, if you're, if you're thinking soundly, but we were also not too proud. What I mean by that is we were, we were able to um, acknowledge, Hey, that pricing strategy I launched last week didn't go as well as I wanted. Let's roll it back. Uh, we learned a lot. We adapted. I think we evolved really quickly. Uh, the biggest way probably that, that you need to that you need to learn and be effective is in hiring people as you grow over time. So I think all those things is a million operating decisions you make on a day to day basis. I feel great about most of them. But sure, there are certainly things that I would wind back the clock and do differently with the benefit of hindsight. Right. Um, but that's how you learn. I think um, during the transaction processes, that's a, that's a little bit different of a, of, of a question. I think there's a, there's a couple things. I would say there were times that we pushed too hard and there were times that we pushed not hard enough. We were pretty instrumental in growing the business. Uh, again, like I said earlier, it was a great business model too, but, but management was pretty instrumental in driving it. And I think perhaps in, in uh, starting the, the first exit, we, we pushed a little too hard related to negotiating with the first private equity firm. And I think that probably brought about a, a hastier exit than, than uh, was necessary. And we loved working with those guys. So if that would have continued, that would have been fine. Um, but then other times I think later decision processes or transaction processes, we could have probably pushed a little bit harder and thrown our weight around a little bit more. But a lot of that is what you learn over time and, and how you, uh, and, and how you kind of grow from what you've done. I'll, I'll say one other thing. One Please. other thing that I would have done is roll more proceeds. Um, I say that mostly jokingly because at each juncture, I feel like I made a good decision, sound decision about personal diversification, mm -hmm. staying dis disciplined about what to reinvest versus what chips to take off the table. So right. um, with any sort of um, decision discipline, I would have done it the same way. But with the benefit of hindsight, I should have left more in, but that certainly doesn't keep me <laughs> up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, I feel like I could literally talk about this topic for another hour with you. Um, this has been a ton of fun. Can you please tell the listeners how they can find out more about you or barcodes or any of the opportunities you're currently working on? Yeah, absolutely. So, so barcodes Inc is a great business, www.barcodesinc.com. Uh, any data capture needs you might have. Like I said, I'm not a, an employee anymore, but I am a shareholder. As far as I'm concerned, I'm, so I'm, in, I'm doing basically four things right now. I'm involved with three smaller private equity firms. Uh, you mentioned Periscope, but there's a couple others as well. Um, they're all looking at lower middle market type businesses, different, different approach. Uh, one is a debt fund. One Periscope's more traditional, uh, lower middle market private equity. And the third is it's a fund of search funds, which, uh, is more appropriate in, in the situation of a management transition, but all looking at the same types of businesses. 
And the fourth thing I do is invest private capital with a colleague and uh, my college roommate who also is a Kellogg grad. So that, that's what I spend my time doing. Uh, if anybody's interested in opportunities or hearing my perspective on anything else, I'm happy to share. You can find me on LinkedIn, Will Daly, and uh, I would be happy to connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, folks. As always, if you like the show, please download all of our episodes and leave us a five star rating on iTunes. You can find show notes at techlowdownshow.com and follow me on Twitter at cjones2002. Thanks again for having me.